Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 8 The Cradle King I should ill fulfil the office of a faithful cousin, or an affectionate friend, if I did not tell you what all the world is thinking. Men say that, instead of seizing the murderers, you are looking through your fingers while they escape, that you will not seek revenge on those who have done you so much pleasure, as though the deed would never have taken place had not the doers of it been assured of impunity. For myself, I beg you to believe that I would not harbour such a thought. Elizabeth. Queen of England, to Mary, Queen of Scots, on rumours of her involvement in the death of her husband, Lord Darnley. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft, with an extra special welcome to everyone who has found the show through both the guest episode on the History of England and the review on the Podcast Maniac blog. I had great fun writing that episode for David, and there was a lot that I had to leave out in order to keep the runtime low, so I guarantee I'll head back to Elizabethan England in the near future and give it the treatment it deserves. Similarly, the History of Witchcraft is on a list of seven cool history podcasts on podcastmaniac.com, and I am called Knowledgeable and Passionate, which I'm very happy about. Today's episode, as you should be able to tell from the title, is on the early life of James VI of Scotland. Originally, I planned to spend a single episode covering the North Berwick trials, which James instigated after his return from Denmark that we covered last time. But the more I researched his reign, the more interesting he became. Throughout his life, James is under threat from one plot or another, and many times these conspiracies are associated with witchcraft. For this reason, and also because it's a great topic anyway, and it's my podcast and I can do what I like with it, we're going to spend some time on the life of James Stuart, King of Scotland, England and Ireland, Defender of the Faith, and Hunter of Witches. In June 1566, young James was born to Mary, Queen of Scots, and the Lord Darnley, Henry Stuart. James's childhood was not an easy one, for he had not been born the heir of a stable and united kingdom. For starters... Both of his parents were Roman Catholics, facing a largely Protestant nobility, which obviously made things difficult. Mary had become queen only a few days after being born, and spent much of her childhood in France while Scotland was ruled by a regency. After her marriage to the Dauphin, and later King of France, Francis II, ended with his death in 1560, Mary returned to Scotland in 1561. Four years later, she married Darnley, her first cousin and fellow Catholic. What is important for our purposes is that both Mary and Darnley had strong claims on the throne of England, and it is little surprised that Elizabeth was ever so slightly miffed that Darnley, an English subject, no less, had married one of her chief rivals. Almost immediately after the marriage, Mary faced a Protestant rebellion, known as the Chaseabout Raid, named as such because all the army seemed to do was chase each other about. It's not a clever name, by far. There were no pitched battles, and as Mary gradually gained more support, the rebels realised their position was untenable, and the leaders fled to England. Among these rebels were the Earls of Moray, Argyll, and Glencairn, which we will be seeing again. A new conciliatory privy council, which included both Catholic and Protestant lords and clergy, sought to ease the tensions among the ruling class, 
but all was not well in the royal household. Darnley, who is repeatedly described as violent, insolent, and having a drinking problem in contemporary sources, was growing resentful of his position as merely king consort. He wished to become crown matrimonial, a position that would make him effectively co-sovereign with Mary, as well as making him her heir should she die childless. But this request was refused by the queen. As their marriage soured after... Only a month, Darnley left court amid rumours that Mary was having an affair with her secretary, David Rizzio. Rizzio was an Italian, born near the town of Turin of Shroud fame, and by all accounts, Mary and Rizzio got on very well, although whether they were ever sexually intimate will likely never be proven. In all likelihood, there was never such an affair, just a low-born foreigner attracting resentment for his success, whose enemies spread rumours. Still, rumours were a powerful thing, and when news spread that the Queen was pregnant, it only added to the gossip. What if this child, the future monarch of Scotland, was not of Darnley, but rather of the secretary? After all, Mary's pregnancy was announced after Darnley had left Mary's side. By the way, this is a rumour that James will have to deal with repeatedly throughout his reign. To say that Darnley held a grudge would be something of an understatement. After several months away from court, with only irregular meetings with his wife, tensions came to a head. Darnley went so far as to conspire with the leaders of the Chase About Rebellion, who returned from England, and on the 9th of March 1566, the rebels seized Holyrood Palace during a dinner, overpowering and killing many of the royal guard, and holding Mary at gunpoint. Darnley, who had led the conspirators into the palace, demanded that Rizzio be presented. Despite facing multiple very shooty guns and sharp pieces of metal, Mary refused to hand over her servant, friend, and possible lover. Nevertheless, Rizzio was found and seized, with some accounts stating that he was hiding behind some drapes, or even behind the Queen's skirts. Now, who made the first cut is unclear, whether it was one of the rebels at Darnley's command or Darnley himself, but Rizzio was set upon and stabbed to death in front of the seven-month pregnant Mary. He suffered over 50 stab wounds before being thrown down a staircase and robbed of his jewellery and wealth. I've posted a painting by John Opie on the Facebook page, and though obviously Opie was not an eyewitness as he was painting almost two centuries later, it is a striking image. Darnley looms over Rizzio with a dagger, while Mary is desperately trying to shield her friend but being held back by armed men. Later the same day, Moray arrived back from England, not having been present at the dinner turned bloodbath, and Mary managed to convince her husband to abandon the conspiracy, and the two fled to Dunbar Castle. Summoning the Earl of Bothwell, James Hepburn, who is not to be confused with another Earl of Bothwell, who we will be dealing with later today, Mary gathered an army loyal to her and evicted the conspirators from Edinburgh. Here, Mary shows remarkable cunning, splitting the rebels by offering pardons to those, namely Moray, that had not been present at the murder of Rizzio, while condemning the others who fled back to England. Bothwell now became one of the few nobles that Mary believed she could trust, and after her abdication, her enemies would use this relationship as evidence of an affair, although again, this is unlikely. Somehow, Darnley's romantic coup d'etat against his wife and his brutal murder of her favourite confidant did not help mend his marital troubles or build trust between them. Well, I never... So this is the world that young James came into. 
a kingdom split by sectarian and political conflict, a mother who had faced numerous rebellions against her reign, and his father was either an estranged and despised drunkard, or a mutilated Italian corpse. Darnley had fled Edinburgh shortly after his son's Catholic baptism on the 17th of December, fearing for his life after a meeting between Mary and a number of nobles on the, quote, problem of Darnley, end quote, which was to be resolved through either divorce or, rather euphemistically, quote, put off one way or another, end quote. A.E. McRobert, however, describes Darnley as having sulked and not attended the ceremony, having left for Glasgow not out of fear, but because he was suffering from either smallpox or syphilis. Whether he knew it or not, Darnley was now an obstacle in the ambitions of several powerful people, mainly the Earl of Moray, the Earl of Bothwell, and of course Mary herself, and he had few supporters. First he had betrayed his wife, then he had betrayed his fellow conspirators, and he was still harping on about being made crown matrimonial. Still, relations between Mary and Darnley seemed to be improving, at least on the surface, with her repeatedly making visits to see him and convincing him eventually to return to Edinburgh, where he was laid up with his illness at Kirker Field. To those familiar with Scottish history, or have visited that part of Edinburgh, you may know what happens next. On the 10th of February, at roughly two in the morning, the skyline of Edinburgh was lit up by a massive explosion, and the entire city awoke to find the old provost's lodgings, where Darnley had currently been staying, a smouldering ruin. A few hours after the explosion, two bodies were found outside the city walls, their bodies seemingly unmarked by the explosion, but having clearly been travelling in some haste, as they were only half-dressed. The initial reports suggested that the men had been strangled or suffocated, although it is also possible that they had suffered internal injuries from the explosion that would not have been known at the time. Lord Darnley, King Consort of Scotland, and his personal valet were dead, along with two other servants who had been staying in the building. These are the things we know with certainty, although naturally this is one of the great mysteries of Scottish history. Most pointed their fingers at Bothwell, his rivalry and hatred of Darnley being the stuff of legend, but Moray and the other conspirators in the Rizzio affair are also suspected they're having their own grudge against the Viper. Naturally, Mary herself had a motive for the murder, especially considering her, shall we say, strained relationship with Darnley? That Mary had visited him only hours before, before suddenly remembering that she had to leave to attend a wedding, would certainly give her the opportunity to plant barrels of gunpowder. Whatever the truth, Darnley was dead, Mary was once again widowed, and James was now without a father, for certain this time. He was three months old. Mary now made the dangerous decision to marry the Earl of Bothwell, the chief suspect in the murder of her last husband, which understandably caused an uproar. I say she decided to marry Bothwell, but again there is only some certainty in this, as Bothwell supposedly kidnapped the Queen, took her to Dunbar Castle, and raped her, forcing her to marry him in a Protestant ceremony on the 15th of May, 1567, now, understandably, there was to be some opposition to this marriage. Many contemporaries and historians consider this to have been prearranged between Mary and Bothwell, especially since Mary could have had Bothwell executed for raping her, simply enough. Now, as far as the nobility was concerned, this was an outrage. The man was the prime suspect in the murder of the king consort, and here he was marrying his widow. 
What followed was expected in Scottish politics. An assembly of lords denounced the marriage, both sides assembled an army of roughly 2,000 men each, and they met at Carberry Hill, outside of Edinburgh, on the 15th of June. There was a standoff, but Mary's army rapidly disintegrated from desertion, and she surrendered to the rebels when she was taken prisoner. A month later, while in custody, she miscarried twins, and on the 24th of July, she formally abdicated to her one-year-old son, James. Mary would eventually escape to England, seeking assistance from her cousin Elizabeth, which didn't go very well, while her supporters fought a civil war on her behalf for the next six years. Bothwell fled Scotland after Carberry Hill, and was arrested and imprisoned in Denmark for his suspected role in Darnley's death, where he went insane and died in 1578. So those are the events of the year before and after James's birth. 2,000 words and 13 minutes into today's episode, and not a word on witchcraft. What on earth am I doing, you might be wondering. This is the history of witchcraft. Where's the magic? The spells! Well, we're getting to that, but frankly it isn't my fault that a short paragraph was not enough to cover the Darnley affair. It was just far too interesting to leave out, so I beg your forgiveness. It doesn't take long for James's reign to involve witchcraft trials, though, with a mass trial in 1568, although how much input the now two-year-old king had in this policy can be debated. It was during the civil war between the Marian supporters and the Regency that the religious leader John Erskine of Dunn is said to have managed a witch hunt in Angus and the Mairns. Both his surname and that county's name I've probably pronounced completely wrong, but these two counties are on the eastern coast of Scotland. According to Normand and Roberts, this trial was conducted in order to, quote, strengthen the new religious order, end quote. Those accused of witchcraft were charged under the 1563 Witchcraft Act, not to be confused with the English 1563 Witchcraft Act. The Scottish Act made it a crime punishable by death to practice witchcraft or to consult witches for advice, medicine or spells, regardless of whether harm was done. The hunt lasted for over a year, and Normand and Roberts put the number of those executed at around 40 people, by far the largest Scottish hunt to date. A curious case of political witchcraft appears in the same period, levelled this time against Sir William Stuart of Luthry. Stuart was accused of attempting to assassinate James's regent, the Earl of Moray, with sorcery and witchcraft. I can find remarkably little on this case, only that Sir William was burnt at the stake for his role in the plot. With such a scarcity of sources, it is difficult to tell whether this was a genuine attempt on Moray's life, whether such an attempt involved supernatural attack, or if this was just a way for the regent to get rid of a rival. Moray would be successfully assassinated the following year, gaining the undesirable honour of being the first person assassinated with a firearm when James Hamilton shot him from a balcony when the regent was riding past. Moray was wounded in the navel or groin and died that night. The ever-present rift between educated demonologists and the folk beliefs believed by the peasants is shown clearly in the trial of Bessie Dunlop, whose trial took place in 1576. Dunlop was a well-known wise woman who was regularly approached by her neighbours for assistance with healing balms, ointments, childbirth, and even recovering stolen goods. Her profile had grown throughout her career until an anonymous source accused her of, quote, abusing people with devilish crafts, end quote. 
which seems to have been the first accusation of wrongdoing levelled at her. On account of this denunciation, she was arrested and interrogated, and she spoke openly about how she had met a spirit called Tom Reed, who had taken her to the elf home where she met the Queen of Fairies. It was through these supernatural meetings that Dunlop discovered the location of missing items, or how to cure a sick child. Her interrogators were desperately trying to reconcile what she was saying with what they believed to be about witchcraft, but Dunlop herself was resistant to these attempts, stubbornly sticking to her own beliefs. The fairy world was not hell, as they proposed, but was neither, quote, devilish nor godly. When her interrogators attempted to get her to admit that she had renounced her baptism in order to gain her otherworldly knowledge, or that she had sex with Tom Reed, who was in fact the devil, she denied it all. Her popular folk beliefs had no resemblance to educated theological theories. They were trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. For Dunlop, she was a good Christian. She had made no pacts with the devil, and had not renounced Christ or committed any sin. The good people, as she called fairies, were simply that. Good people, eager to assist wise women like herself to make other people's lives a little bit easier. For the prosecutors of Dunlop, these were delusions made by the devil, and the law was clear. On the 8th of November 1576, Bessie Dunlop was found guilty of witchcraft, and taken to Castle Hill in Edinburgh, where she was strangled and burnt at the stake. Normand and Roberts argue that, between Dunlop's trial and the North Berwick trials, thorough proselytising of the masses by zealous ministers, combined with other trials during this period, indoctrinated many magistrates and peasants with an understanding of Protestant demonology. This would explain why, when the North Berwick trials were underway, Tortured suspects were much more able to confess to crimes that the interrogators were expecting. James Stuart assumed his full authority as king in his own right in 1578, although this meant very little since he was immediately seized in a coup. A year later, the future Duke of Lennox would arrive in Scotland and became a close favourite of the 15-year-old king. In 1581, James Douglas, the Earl of Morton and Regent of the Young King, was executed by Lennox for his role in Darnley's death. Lennox remained a powerful influence over young James, until yet another coup forced him away in 1582. The Ruth then raid, as it came to be known, ousted Lennox for his role in the deaths of Morton, Moray and Darnley, although those last two seem a bit unlikely, since he wasn't even in the country at the time. Once James escaped the Rutheran raiders, he summoned the Earl of Bothwell, Francis Stuart, the first cousin of the king, to be the Lord Admiral. As an aside, how many Stuarts are pottering around in early modern Scotland? And for that matter, why did James have to be such a popular name? It makes it very confusing. To point out the obvious, this Bothwell is not the same Bothwell that died in a Danish prison. From here on, When I refer to Bothwell, I mean this new Bothwell, which is good because we're going to be talking about him a lot over the next few episodes. In 1585, James began the marriage arrangements for a Danish princess, which we discussed last episode, and in 1587, the Scottish Parliament authorised the Lord Advocate, the title of the highest legal official in the kingdom, to independently pursue, quote, odious crimes, end quote. This was the year that Mary, Queen of Scots, was executed on Elizabeth's orders. Here is another topic of great controversy, whether or not this execution was justified. 
Catholic contemporaries depict Mary as a martyr, murdered for her faith, and Protestants as a treasonous rabble-rouser seeking to undermine and overthrow her cousin. Elizabeth herself claimed to be furious at the actions of her representative, Privy Councillor William Davison, even though she signed Mary's death warrant. I believe the current consensus is that Mary was indeed attempting to usurp Elizabeth, but I'm not an expert on the topic. Either way, James's reaction to the event was important, because while he denounced it as a, quote, preposterous and strange procedure, end quote, he did not agree with Bothwell and the other hawks in his government that demanded he invade England in response, with Bothwell even being placed under house arrest due to advocating this course. James was undoubtedly considering the long game. With his mother gone, and Elizabeth childless, he was next in line for the English throne. Relations between the two kingdoms had been generally cordial, especially compared to previous centuries, with repeated payments from Elizabeth to James, and James's outspoken support for Elizabeth in the event of a successful Spanish invasion. War would jeopardise all of this. The English were not going to support the claim of someone who just invaded them. Bothwell would continue to be a thorn in James's side, and was accused of attacking the royal castle at Stirling in 1585, which he denied, and in July, his eternal enemy John Maitland became the king's chancellor, a key person of interest over the next decade. In 1589, Bothwell rose in rebellion against James, only to surrender and be found guilty of treason, but here James shows some mercy deferring punishment of Bothwell and the other rebels, even going so far as to make Bothwell a key member of his government while he travelled to Denmark to fetch his royal wife. We will cover Bothwell and the North Barrack trials in detail next week. Let's just say that Bothwell had a strong claim to the throne, as James's cousin had shown repeatedly that he was less than loyal to his king, and had powerful enemies in the government. When James returned from Denmark, and accusations began to spread that witches had attempted to destroy the king and his royal wife, well, where are fingers going to point? Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.